Last week, if you were here, uh, Dan said that it's great when you're preaching to have some interaction. And I would agree with that totally. So we're going to continue that theme a little bit this morning. Is that okay? Oh dear. (laughs) Let's rewind. It's great, the preacher says, if we have some interaction when we preach. Is that okay? Come on! So I want you to repeat, I want you to repeat after me, okay? It. It. I want it. I need it. I have to have it. I've seen it. I've had it. I lost it. I want it back. Thanks for coming. <laughs> you know, some people have it. When I was 15, nearly 16, In the church that I was brought up in by my parents and I went to church from when I was that big, that big, uh, and and I kind of knew all the stuff but I didn't really have it and I remember on one Sunday night as a 15, nearly 16 year old and this visiting preacher came to our church called Ivor, he had a mass of white hair, to my knowledge he was at least 125 years old. He was probably 60 looking back but when you're 15, an old man with white hair is just ancient And as I sat in the balcony and I listened to him, I thought, boy, you cannot preach. He was not a good preacher, but he had it. He had it. And at 15 and a half, nearly 16, I got up at at the end of his fumbling, bumbling words. And I left my seat and came down to the front, which was our tradition in that church. And I knelt at the front and I gave my life to Christ. Because he had it. My dad had it. I know he had it. He was very quiet in lots of ways. And especially in his last 20, 25 years, he had it. Some people haven't got it. I remember as a young 28, 29 year old going to speaking on worship at this Baptist church. And there was all the musicians and the singers. And I was trying to talk about worship. And one of the elders had come on that day. And he was sat at the back. And he interrupted me all the way through. He criticized and harangued and challenged and everything. And I found out later he was part of a divisive split in that church. And I thought hasn't got it. Some churches have it, don't they? You know when you go into the church, they've got it. Some churches haven't got it. Some churches have lost it. Some churches want it back. So what is it? It's not an original idea to me. A guy in America called Craig Grishel developed this language trying to describe that intangible something that you have, not just the Spirit, because every church has the Spirit, every Christian has the Spirit, but that's something that you can't quite describe, you can't quite put it into words, you just know it's it. You know it when you see it, and you know when it's not there. And I believe God has got us at the start of 2010 in this series that we're calling Passion, but we could call it It, because it's hard to define, isn't it? You know, it's not down to your personality, extrovert people have it, But introvert people have it. Some extrovert people like to think they have it, but they don't have it. Some noisy people have it, but some quiet people have it. In fact, where I've seen it, the most powerful has often been in the quiet people. Some of you have it. If I wandered around here, I would say, some of you have got it. Some of you have had it. Some of you have lost it. But by God's grace, you can get it back. What is it? It's that deep passion for God right at the core of your being that drives your whole life that compels you it's like it's so hard to to describe it it's kind of it's inspiring it's a little scary it's a little mysterious 
I'm going to read something to you called The Invitation. It's written by a Native American elder. But there's something in it which pulls something out of you. And if you've got it, or you've had it, and you've lost it, there will be something that comes a little bit alive as I read this to you. It says this, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for dreams, for the adventure of being alive. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow, if you've been opened by life's betrayals, or you've become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, realistic or remember the limitations of being human. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty, even if it's not pretty every day. And if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver moon, yes. It doesn't interest me where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary, bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me who you are, how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or with whom you studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else fades away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. Wouldn't you like to write that just once in your life, eh? I'll tell you, that boy had got it. The it, it's deep inside a person. It's not on the outside. It's deep on the inside of a person. Say with me, I want it. I need it. I have to have it. So where is it? What do these two things have in common? An apple and the earth. They both have a core. Something right in the center. And I want to suggest to you that where you find it is not on the outside, but is on the inside. It's in the core of a person. It's a matter of identity. You see, it's your identity that defines you. Who or what defines you? Uh, do you ever get spam email? Anyone get like junk email? We get loads of it here in the church. And normally you just delete it and it just goes into your, the folders and stuff. And one came through to me this week which caught my attention because the line said, um, <laughs> I need to write this, I can't even believe it. Your performance in bed defines you. <laughs> I asked my wife what she thought about that and I won't even go there, okay? <laughs> But I thought, wow, what a statement of our culture. Your performance in bed defines you. You see, the problem is our culture does define identity only by external things. How successful are you? How rich are you? How healthy are you? How happy are you? Even in our modern cultures, oh no we don't, we talk about values and character. Listen, be very careful. When people talk about values and character, and then they say, and of course if you've got good values and character, you'll be healthy, wealthy and happy. 
Because they're still defining success by external factors. And identity is by external factors. A friend of mine said this to me recently. Now, I'm going to push your thinking a little bit this morning, all right? It's pushed my thinking, and I think it will push yours. But he said this to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. This is quite deep, so just stay with me, all right? If our core identity is not who we are in Christ, then we will borrow our identity from something or someone else. And if you borrow something, you're in debt, and you then are having to service the debt that you've borrowed. Are you with me? So if our core identity right at the center of who we are as a person is not our relationship with God, then we borrowed it from something else and we're in debt. And we'll end up living our life trying to service that debt. Let me use me as an example. My core identity is a successful leader of a successful church, then I'm in trouble. Because A, how do you define success? And B, what happens if I'm not that great a leader? What happens if the church isn't doing that well? My identity is threatened. My core identity. How about if my core identity was in being a good parent, able to bring up my kids so that no harm would ever befall them and they'd all turn out perfect? We'd all be in trouble, wouldn't we? See, my core identity. If your core identity is being financially prosperous, you're in trouble as a follower of Christ. You see, if less our core identity is our relationship with Christ then anything else is just a borrowed thing that we will end up being in debt to. And one of the kind of challenges I think, and I was going to use three flip charts this week. Those of you that were here last week with Dan's two flip chart. Now, I don't want to, I'm not criticizing anything. I want to ask you to think about something as a follower of Christ. Our modern culture tells us that in order to understand ourselves better, and I understand this, that we put ourselves in the center and then we think about all the different things that make up our life, okay? Our goals, our family, our job, our values, all of that. And I'm all for that. And I understand that mind mapping thing to try and understand who I am. The danger is, as followers of Christ, we have to remember that at the center of us is not me. It's not me. You see, a biblical mindset of how we live our lives is at the center of who we are is Christ meant to be across there, yeah? And that we live our life in concentric circles, radiating out from Christ who lives in us. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. In fact, in the original, it says, I live by the faith of the Son of God, and that's a whole different sermon, who loved me and gave himself for me. And, if, and this, is, this is so deep, okay? And you think, I know that. It, you do not get it unless you get it by revelation of the Spirit. You see, I, I, I've thought like this for years. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, I've been crucified to Christ. Yeah, Christ lives in me, does he? What's most important to me? My health, my wealth, my happiness, my fulfillment, my potential, my purpose, my destiny. If it is, I've not died. God said to me something really, really powerful recently, which was not what I wanted to hear. As I was praying and thinking, I believed that God almost audibly said to me, are you dead yet? I thought, what? (laughs) Because actually I do wonder whether the goal of spiritual life, if we really want to live, the Bible says you have to die. In order for this grain of wheat to live, something's got to fall into the ground and die. And when I've met people who've got it, I've met dead people. 
They're dead to themselves and they're alive to Christ at work within them. And yes, all of these things are important, but they flow out of a center, which is not me on the throne, but God. But God. The biggest obstacle I want to suggest that we face as Christ followers is not our culture, is not the devil, is not our lack of resources, is not Islam, it's not secularism, it's spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness in the lives of Christians and communities of faith is our number one obstacle. And we become spiritually dead when we lose it. And I want to show you this morning, I believe, how we can get it back. And I have to say, it's not seven easy steps to get it back. To be honest, a lot of that stuff, I think, is so surface. It's not seven easy steps to get it back. It's more of a call to something much deeper than that, where we allow God's Spirit to transform us on the inside, on the core of our being. Say, I want it. I I need it. I I have to have it. Fantastic. How do you get it? Mike Iaconelli, you don't have to carry on there. Mike Iaconelli, in his book, Dangerous Wonder, our book of the month, if you've not got it, you need it. You have to have it. Get it from the coffee shop downstairs. He says in the book, I believe most of us, listen to this, I believe most of us have lost our passion. The passion of our marriages, the passion of our jobs, and the passion of our faith. And he goes on to say, life without passion is life without texture, contrast, and depth. You know, Dan did an awesome job last week of talking about depth, the icebergs. And the week before, Janet did a great job opening up for us this passion, this fire of God within us that's really hard to describe. It's just it. You know, how do you get it? Mike Iaconelli says in his book, in his opinion, to get this passion is almost entirely nothing to do with anything that you can do. Now immediately, in our control-driven, do you know what I mean, self-actualizing culture, we struggle with that, don't we? I've got to be able to do it. Tell me seven ways and I will get it. It's almost entirely nothing to do with what you can do. But it's entirely locked up in understanding what God has done and continues to want to do in you and through you. You see, we will never get the deep, core passion for God unless we receive, understand and live in the passion that God has for us. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15. And this is the famous story that we call the story of the prodigal son or the lost son. Interestingly, the word prodigal originally, it was a very positive word. It's where we get the word prodigious or prodigy from. So you think of a child prodigy, okay, like a genius um, uh, pianist. And it's, it's, it, it really means reckless, recklessness. It's kind of a, it's a very positive thing. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher a couple of hundred years ago and he said, we need a reckless love for our reckless sin. And this story is an amazing story that many of us know. I wonder if we could stand for a minute. Is that all right? I want to read it to you and I want us to stand because I want us to... Because this is such a well-known story, such a Sunday school story that we can lose it. And I want to just read the Word of God and stand together. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. And by the way, in the Middle East, in these days, a man of his stature would never run anywhere. It's like imagining Barack Obama running for the bus. They don't do that, do they? Important people like that, they don't run for buses. Buses run for them. They stop for them, don't they? And he ran. And he would have had long tasseled kind of garments. And he'd had to gather them up and tuck them in his belt. And he'd run, tripping over his, almost, his, his, his clothes to get to his son who was coming home. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, we call him the elder brother, was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother rejoiced and celebrated with the father. No, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Again, you don't do that. Men like that do not do that. But he went out and pleaded with the elder son. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Take your seats, thanks. On the day that Jesus told that story and those other two stories, there were two groups of people around Jesus. One was a group of people that the Bible often refers to as sinners. They were irreligious people. They were prostitutes, tax collectors. Okay, irreligious, West Bromwich Albion supporters. There were all these kind of people. They were, at, they were around him, okay? And they were irreligious and they were lost. But there were also another group of people who were always around Jesus as well. And they were the Pharisees. They weren't there to hang out with him. They were there to criticise him. They weren't Villa supporters. Steady, steady. Stewards, please. And, and this group of people who were religious, here's the point, they were lost as well. You see, whether you're irreligious or religious, you're both lost. Whether you're moral or immoral, you can be lost. And you see, we miss the point of this story. Because in the beginning of Luke 15, where, where Jesus begins to speak and they criticize him, the Bible says, he said to them, and then he tells them three stories. Who's the them? Not the sinners, the religious people. Those three stories in Luke 15 are not directed at the sinners really. They're directed at the Pharisees, the religious, the moral, lost people. And you see, the younger son depicts 
the group of sinners who were hanging around Jesus, irreligious but lost. The eldest son in the story really depicts the Pharisees, religious people who were equally as lost. Both sons were alienated from the father's heart. He had to come out to both sons and urge them both to come in to the father's home. I want to push your thinking in some of these things this morning. The younger son doesn't want the father, he wants his money. Can you imagine going to your dad and saying, Dad, I'd really like it if you were dead, so I could have your money now, because that's what he says. He doesn't want the father, he wants the father's money. But you know the elder brother? He doesn't want the father neither. He wants the father's money too. You see, when the father puts his estate in two halves, he gives one half to the younger brother. Who's the other half coming to? The elder brother. So when the younger brother comes home and the father then kills the fattened calf and brings the robe and brings the ring, the younger son gets angry. Why? Because he's spending whose money? His money. You see, the younger son didn't want the father any more. The elder one didn't want the father any more than the younger one did. They just went about it in different ways. The younger son was very, very bad. The elder son was very, very good. They're both a million miles away from the heart of the father. The one was irreligious, the one was religious. The one was a rebel, the other was compliant. They were both, both away. Neither had it. Neither had it. And the father desperately wanted his sons to have it. Not the stuff, but the heart of the father. The love and the identity deep in their core where they knew they were loved by their father. And I wonder how many of us as followers of Christ actually want what God has for us more than we want God himself. And I wonder if how much of what we do is motivated by those kind of issues. There's two ways you can be your own saviour. You can try and do it by being very, very bad. You can try and do it by being very, very good. Each way, you're your own saviour. Religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, both Reject God. I never disobeyed you, he said. I was very, very good. And look at how you treat me. You see, the whole motivation for his obedience, the elder brother, wasn't love for the father. It was some kind of fear. It was some kind of self-generated thing. When I became a Christian at nearly the age of 16, when I saw this eye of a guy and, you know, speak and, and, and just something grabbed me. It wasn't long before I heard things around me as a young Christian where I thought, you know what, I've got to be really, really good because one day Jesus could come back. And if he comes back and catches me and I'm not really, really good, I'm in trouble. You remember that? And there was a song at the time, a Larry Norman song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready, which I love the song, used to play it in a band, but used to freak me out every time. Because the song said, two men walking up a hill, one disappears, one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. A man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise, she turns her head, he's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. I thought, my life, he could come any moment. I've got to be very, very good or he won't accept me. And then we used to hear things like this. If Jesus comes back tonight, will he find you in the cinema? (laughs) Or will he find you at the back of the church snogging a girl? In my case, yes. That would have been the reality when I was a teenager. And And this fear is the motivation to be very, very good. And to do the things to keep God happy. And to somehow earn his approval. To validate the love that we think he's got for us. You know what? Fear as a motivation to love God is like a crutch for a broken leg. It's only, meant to, it's only a temporary fix. 
It's not a good motivation. And this elder brother is motivated by something that's not it. 15-year-old, after the youth group, went home and wrote in her diary what she felt she'd learnt that night. And she wrote this, God is good, I'm bad, try harder. We missed it. That's not it. That is not the gospel. The youngest son is disobeying the father to get things from the father. The eldest son is obeying the father to get things from the father. Are you with me? Neither of them have got it. A guy called Wayne Jacobson says something called the tyranny of the favour line. I want to just talk to you about this. The tyranny of the favour line. Okay, Again, this presses our thinking. Basically what he says is that there's, we all live with this imaginary, invisible line of favour. And we think that if we do the right things, then somehow God will approve and will live in his favour. If we do the wrong things... God will disapprove and all of a sudden we're out of his favour. That's these guys. So we think, well, did God love the younger son who did the wrong things any less than he loved the other son? No. See, when did he love the younger son the most? Was it when in his study the younger son came in and said, Dad, could you be dead so I could have your money? Or was it when he let him go and let him get on with his life and didn't run after him? Or was it when he saw him running up the hill? Or was it when he embraced him? Or was it when he killed the fat guy? When did he love him the most? Well, the reality is all the time, isn't it? When he was with the prostitutes and the... And this is where we, we... Religious people, we struggle with this. When he was with the prostitutes and living with the pigs and, and, and drinking the money and spitting on like his dad's grave, the dad loved him as much as he loved him when he was embracing him at the end. You see, the tyranny of the favour line says to us that our salvation is all about what we do or don't do. Now, I'm developing this in my own thinking a little bit. And I think that there's another application for this tyranny of the favour line. And it's like this. That if my life is good, God loves me. If I'm healthy, wealthy and happy, it's a sign that I'm blessed. If my life is bad... If I'm not healthy, wealthy and happy, then somehow, perhaps God doesn't love me anymore. Anyone ever felt like that? God, how could you let this happen to me? How could you let these circumstances happen to my life? It's all about our own salvation. It's all about our own stuff. When I was, um, the first, one of the first times I went to South Africa, and I know I've told you this story before, but it's funny and it's worth a retell. I met this lady called Beauty. That wasn't her real name. That was a baptism name, a Christian name. It's called Beauty. And she's about that big and about that wide. And has a bosom the size of the Pyrenees. And um, she was just an amazing, an amazing woman who got nine kids. A couple of them have died through HIV AIDS. One was shot. She had an alcoholic husband who abused her and then left her to bring up the nine kids. But when I met Beauty for the first time... And um, she would get up at four o'clock every morning and she would not only look after her own kids, but she'd come into the, one of the centres there and she'd cook food for 20 or 30 HIV AIDS orphan kids. And she'd do that every day. And when you'd walk into the kitchen, and I've done it many times, walk into the kitchen and help her cook, she would take you and embrace you and pull you to her bosom and you thought you were going to die. <laughs> and I thought, I will die in this bosom and people from the British consulate will find me here. And this is the end of my life, within the bosom of beauty. We're going to stop there. We're going to stop there. Some of you are saying, I want it. No, stop it. <laughs> I need it. I, stop it. Stop it. 
But you know, when I looked at her life, I thought, here was somebody who didn't, love with, who didn't live in the tyranny of the favour line. Her life was bad by all accounts. I tell you what, every time you met her, you knew she had it. She had a joy and a passion deep on the inside of her. But her life wasn't great. And you know, you and I, when our life's not great, how easy it is that we're chucking on God, don't we? Oh, you let me down, God, because I didn't get that job. You didn't get me down because I'm not financially as successful as somebody else. It's a shallow, shallow faith that settles for that. God's calling us to better than that. Where we live with a deep sense that we are loved. Regardless of the circumstances of our life. Regardless of whether we do the right things or the wrong things. You can be very, very bad or very, very good. God loves you the same. And you know what? When we get this, it motivates us to want to do the right things. Not out of fear, but out of love. If we really got this at the core of our being. I tell you what, many of us in our culture, especially my kind of age, in our late 30s, early to mid 40s, going through this whole midlife thing, thinking, who am I? Am I successful? Have I reached my potential? Have I reached my destiny? Wrong questions. Good questions. Wrong questions. We go down that track and we end up in a place of disillusionment and disappointment and we think, I need to change my circumstances in order to somehow be happy. No, we need to meet our God. We need to know that He loves us passionately, that He lived, that He died for us, that we are only secure when we are secure in His love. Let all of these other things flow out of who we are in our relationship with Christ. And this morning, your life might be bad and you might be doing wrong things, but I tell you what, God loves you with a passion. A passion. Just as much as anyone else whose life is good and who are doing the right things. Do not live under the tyranny of the favour line. Please. This story opens this up to us. You know, the gospel is neither one way or the other. It's a third way. You see, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted and approved by God. The gospel says, I am accepted in Christ, therefore I obey. (laughs) Not because I have to, but because I want it. Out of love and out of passion. I believe the biggest challenge to us as Christ followers in our modern age is spiritual deadness. It's not the devil. It's not the culture. It's not Islam. It's not the lack of buildings or resources. It's none of those things. It's spiritual deadness in the heart of believers. Spiritual deadness in the heart of me. Where we live on the surface, but on the inside, we've lost it. We want it back. Want it back. And I see what, when you get it on the inside, you can see it in your eyes. You can see it in your eyes. You can see it in how we live our lives. You can see it in how we go through tough circumstances. You can see it in how we come out. You can see it in how we overcome because it's on the inside and it drives our life. I want to give you five things. I said I'm going to give you seven steps. I want to give you five marks of the elder brother. This is by a guy called Tim Keller. And, And when I heard this and read this, I thought, my life. I got some of these. I got some of these. If you're an elder brother and you've lost it, one of the marks is this. You get incredibly angry when life doesn't go well. I don't just mean you get angry or sad or disappointed. You get incredibly angry with God because life hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. That's a mark of an elder brother. Because you deep down believe that God owes you because you've been very, very good. How on earth could God let this happen to you when you've been so good? It's a mark of an elder brother. Number two, you respond badly to criticism. 
You do one of two things. You attack the person criticizing you or you crumble on the inside. Because your core identity is self. And when you're criticized, you're either going to fight back or you're going to crumble. You see, if, our, if we no longer live, but Christ who lives in us is the foundation and is the core identity of who we are, then when we're criticized, so what? If it's good, we'll listen to it. If it's not, we won't. We won't fight back and we won't crumble on the inside. Because our identity is not rooted in who we are. Our identity is in Christ. Easy to say. Really hard to do, isn't it? Marks of an elder brother. Number three, our prayers are more petition prayers than adoration prayers. Help me. Get me out. Do this. Do that. Rather than thank you, God. Thank you, God. We tend to look down on others even though we would never verbalize it. And finally, we find it really hard to forgive when people wrong us. You know, repentance is what? Sorrow for wrongdoing. And this is really going to blow your minds. I wonder if repentance needs to go deeper than sorrow for wrongdoing. Do we need to have sorrow for the reasons behind our right doing? Ooh. So in other words, yes, we have sorrow for wrongdoing, but if our reasons for right doing are to feel good and feel superior and feel in control or feel spiritual, perhaps we need to repent for the reasons for our right doing. See, if we're not careful with this thing, we'll either live in self-righteousness or self-pity, won't we? Either way, it's all about self. If our right doing is motivated out of our love for the Father and out of our passion for God, it's a great thing. And so when I come to church and when I read the Bible and when I pray and when I give and when I love and when I tithe and when I serve, if that's motivated out of my love for the pa- and the passion for the Father, it's a great thing. But if it's motivated through anything else, through me trying to be superior or trying to show God how great I am or in order to earn approval, perhaps I need to repent of those reasons for the right doing in my life. The moral of the story is not if you rebel and repent, God will take you back. The moral of the story is whether you repent or not, God loves you with a passion. And that love that God has wants to call you and urge you back into the Father's home. Whether you've gone off to the pigs and the prostitutes or whether you've stayed in the house and been very, very good. He wants to call you, not into the house, but into the home. And He wants to lavish His love upon you this morning. I really believe that. Whoever you are this morning, you may never have heard this message before, that God the Father loves you, but He does with an absolute passion. You may have heard it a million times, but you've lost it. You don't understand just how much God loves you, but folks, He does. He really does. In the long run, it doesn't matter whether rebellion or religion keeps you from a vibrant relationship with the Father. The result is still the same. And I'm sensing in my life and in many of our lives that, you know, we as a church, we're a great activity church. We do great projects. We do great stuff. But I tell you what, if we have lost it on the inside, eventually we're going to be dead. Spiritually. Because all of the activity, if it's not coming out of a vibrant relationship with the Father, where we're not doing activity to show how great we are or to be be impactful or to be influential or to any of that stuff, but it's motivated out of our passion for God, then we're dead. But by God's help and grace, we can be alive again, can't we? And we can get it back. 
you can get it back. You know, in World War II, there was a soldier that was just at the start of World War II was going off to, to war and his wife was pregnant and he went off to war and left a photograph of himself which, and eventually, obviously, the baby was born, never seen the father and every night as the, as the kid grew up, the, um, the mother would say prayers with the kid and the kid would get up out of the bed and go over to the photograph of the father that he'd never seen, kiss the photograph and go back to bed. The war finished and this man miraculously came home. Imagine that, never seen the son before, the son had never seen the father. First night into the bedroom and the mother does the same rituals, prayers with the kid. The kid gets up, there's the father waiting for the embrace. The kid goes past the father to the photograph, kisses the photograph again and goes back to bed. And I wonder how many of us in our spiritual lives are still kissing the photograph when the father's standing right there. All the trappings, all the external stuff, that's not what's important to God. What's important to God is the heart of the Father and your heart, intimacy with God, a vibrant relationship with God. Not because you're trying to prove, not because you're trying to earn, not because you're trying to be very, very good or very, very bad, but because you say, you know what, God, you've done it all. I just want to receive it. And out of that, I want to live my life. Why don't we pray?